Welcome, everybody. It is June 10th, 2020, and welcome to the Fight Business Podcast. I'm Patrick Auger with The Body Lock, and with me, joining the joining me, the illustrious, the, the man who knows all the numbers in the biz, you've you've seen him if you haven't if you watch this podcast and you don't know who he is then i'm i'm shocked to be honest uh john s nash from buddy buddy elbow john how are you doing good good thanks for having me on i, I don't know if i know all the numbers i mean i don't, I don't know if i know anything but still i'll uh, take that I'll, I'll i'll take that that act i'll take that title that i know all the numbers well, I mean, you know enough that they've had to, you know, change things in the antitrust lawsuit because of some of your work. So I think, I think you know quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> um, but with uh, with that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, you you recently did an article um, on one championship that just came out the other day, uh, talking about their their filings. It was a follow up from an article you did back in 2018. Um, so looking at this. From the outside perspective, you know, as you pointed out, Variety has been toting it's a one billion valuation. Their hundred million dollar revenues are imminent. All these things. Uh, I guess the first question, looking at what you found in terms of that, their you know losses have grown quite a bit. Uh, it, it, do you think they really made up the gap in 2019? Is there something we're missing here, or I mean, is there something else going on? It's impossible to know, but I can't imagine. That last year, I mean, there's nothing that strikes me about last year that was mark markedly different than the previous years. I guess they had Eddie Alvarez and Demetrius Johnson. They got the Bleacher Report deal, but uh, I don't see that being a game changer. No, nothing that has happened last year that strikes me as a game changer. So, and their esports they launched, but I, I can't recall a big event last year they did. So, no, I, I just. It might, their next filing might surprise us, but no, I, I doubt it will. I think it's gonna. It, the odds are that'll be more of the same. With the um, the the article itself as well, you mentioned you cover barter transactions. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I'm I'm no expert in financial reports. I've I've looked over some for what I do as you know a business consultant, my day job, but I've never seen barter transactions valued the way they have, especially shifting from the report that was originally talked about in 2017 to the 2018 and how they kind of like went away and went on under other sponsorships and things are, 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 are barter transactions common? Is this something that I just don't know? Is it I, I, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with them. So I don't think they're that common. I've, you know, I've shown it to a couple of guys that do finances that, you know, look at company CFOs and stuff and they're not used to barter transactions used that way, at, at least to the extent they're used. And, it was interesting that the barter transactions too, they, they, they were in the previous filing, but this filing, they eliminated that item. So the 2017, the last year that we had, had like 4 million in barter, no, I, I think it was more than that, like $10 million in barter transactions. Now there's, the, this year's filings include 2017 still, but now there's zero barter transactions and you see their broadcast fees and sponsorships gone way up. And if you take the difference between the two the two filings, the same year, two different filings, you see that it's exactly the same. So you assume that barter transactions have gone into those two. But the description of those two types of revenue sources haven't, I mean, the, the sponsorship has changed. It includes some barter transaction language that it's non-cash uh, transactions, but the broadcast one hasn't. So you're like, well, how can barter be in that? So I don't know, it's still, it's, it's a little confusing, but uh, uh, it's hard to tell exactly 
how much is truly cash that people are paying for their product and how much is it is an exchange of services, which is not quite as good because money you can actually do more with, which services you're kind of, you're kind of stuck with limited of what, what you can do with that, uh, that transaction. Definitely. Yeah. Cash in hand is always much more valuable than uh, exchanging services. Um, so with that all being said, with the losses, you know, kind of skyrocketing um, and, and I would assume, as you mentioned, since uh, Eddie Alvarez made his debut 2019, I would assume fighter costs are going to go up as well. Is, is one in trouble here? Are they viable or is this kind of, is it, is this something that we've seen in other promotions before you, you kind of touched on it in one of your articles. Um, but yeah, I mean, are they a viable promotion? Are they in trouble at all? I mean, I don't want to say they're in trouble because they have a large pile of cash still. Even if they burn through the same amount or even more this year at the, at the pace it's been growing, they probably have enough cash to keep losing money for another year to go into 2021. Uh, and that's without any change in their, you know, their the, the economics of the business if they start making money or whatever, right? I, don't, I just don't know what their, their game plan, their end, end result is. So I, I don't want to speak on that. But it, 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 it reminds me... And uh, it reminds me a little bit, every MMA promotion has lost money getting into it. UFC, famously, they always claim they lost $44 million before they hit it with Tough. Um, you had uh, uh, Bellator lost over $100 million over the years. Uh, Strikeforce, I can't remember, they lost, you know, 10. They lost probably the, the least amount of money, but they still weren't losing uh, when they sold to the UFC. They still were in the, the, the having losses, not showing gains. But one strikes me more like, international fight league or pro elite in the sense that their losses are very, very rapid. And I'm not seeing tangible gains uh, from the type of losses they have. Where like pro elite went out and bought a bunch of promotions that were kind of, you didn't really need. They just were bought because they needed to spend the money and show the investors are doing something. One spending tons on, you know, marketing costs and stuff, but I'm not seeing a payoff at all. I'm not, it's not like they're acquiring top fighters and they're losing money but they're building a fan base i just i'm not i'm not quite seeing that so i mean maybe i'm wrong i mean i, I do one thing troubles me is one core product when they first started was mixed martial arts and now they're you know they they claim to be a mixed martial arts promoter but it's also a kickboxing promotion that's also uh also has a entertainment studio they're going to make movies they're going to be a video game company and they're going to do esports so what exactly is one I mean, it, to me, that's that doesn't fill me with confidence that you keep changing what your, your kind of your mission statement of your company is. Hundred percent agreed. Especially, you know, they're trying to get that whole one universe together to create superheroes. That's, uh, you know, that's the dream, so to speak. Well, but as you mentioned, that that's a little concerning when uh, a company consistently changes their mission statement and values. Um, I want to want to shift topics a little bit here. Uh, fighter pay, obviously huge uh, at the moment. You've got Masvidal, you've got uh, Jones, you've got Cejudo retiring, but then saying, if the price is right, I'll come come out of retirement. Uh, all this stuff going on. Uh, great Gray Maynard just did a great interview with us. Uh, St Stephen Ray uh, did a great interview talking about, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of the fighter pay. Uh, you know, this is something that is a hot topic right now, but you've been covering this for a better part of a decade at this point. Um, and, uh, you're old, I am. <laughs> sorry, didn't mean to do that. But I yeah. mean, the point is, you're you're by far the expert away in this type of stuff. 
when it comes to this new wave of, of fighters uh, speaking out publicly, talking about all this stuff, your initial impressions of this is, is this different than other times that this has happened? Say back when Randy Couture did it or anything like that is, is a union or trade association much more possible right now, or are there still, you know, too many roadblocks in the way? Uh, what's your, just your gut feeling on that? Well, I mean, my gut feeling, it's a little different in the sense that the fighters seem much more informed now than they did in the past. So they're, 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 which is surprising. I, I mean, for years I was always surprised because I, I speak to, I used to speak to a lot of fighters. I don't, I don't talk to them as much anymore, but I'd speak to them and, and I was surprised they didn't know anything about the finances of the business because we've, we've been posting stuff on it. You, you know, I mean, it wasn't definite, but now, I mean, they're bringing up specific percentages. You know, uh, a few years ago, I would talk to fighters and I'd say, well, you know, it's, you know, they, they go, well, we don't know how much the UFC pays us of the revenue. I go, yeah, we do. We posted it was 20%. You know, we've done, uh, estimates at the time we didn't have the actual court documents back then the fighters were unaware of it so obviously the fighters are more aware now than they were just even a few years ago and that's i guess that's a positive you have change you gotta have informed fighters uh i'm not i'm always a little pessimistic because it's mma is the ufc mma the whole economy of mixed martial arts is is not very conducive to having a union, having an organization. And it's not just because of the way the fighters are, that they're individuals. The way the the, the league, the MMA, even though MMA promotions are not leagues, they're promoters, but they call themselves leagues, the way it's set up makes it very difficult to work. The way the, the, the economy of the industry, the whole system is set up, it's very difficult for this to succeed. And that always fills me with pessimism. And it's, it's because it's not, there's no simple solution. I think a lot of fans are like, oh, if you guys would just form a union and strike, it's not, it's not that simple. That stuff is not, first, it's very hard to form a union, especially in the climate, and it might not work the way you think it will. So uh, am I, it's different in the sense that fighters are more knowledgeable. There seems to be, I think we're kind of reaching a breaking point. Fighters, you know, they know they're not getting a fair share, but I'm also not, I'm not convinced that we've reached a point where things are going to change because, that might be the next step because people I don't think are quite, they, they, they might know that things are not right, but they don't know what to do until they figure out what to do. You know, what happens? No, you know, everybody's just going to be kicking dirt, wondering what to do. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and as you said, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people, I know you have uh, on your social media of just like, Oh, they should form a union to do that. I mean, that's not an easy process. There, there's a whole, list of ramifications that, that go into that, that Leslie Smith has covered. Uh, I'm not sure the NLRB head would certify them as, <laughs> as yeah, right now they're classified as independent contractors. At least they're, everybody assumes they're classified as independent contractors. And the NL, the only one that can overturn that IRS and NLB is that, is that the, the Trump administration is actively hostile to organized labor. I mean, really hostile. If you pay attention to what they're doing, they do not like unions. They don't, uh, they like corporate power and, and worker power is not a priority to them. So you're, it's going to be very, first you'd have to, first you'd have to get all the fighters to sign on. Second, you'd have to then get uh, the NLRB to prove you to be employees and not, and not independent contractors. If they don't do that, if you're ruled independent contractors, then your union effort was wasted. Uh, even if you form a union, there's very little you might be able to do in this climate because uh, people always say, like, well, fighters deserve 50% of the revenue. How are you going to get 50% of the revenue? I mean, going on strike, 
labor stoppages, I don't think are going to be effective with fighters because the very, I mean, the very simple fact is you just need a small group of fighters to cross the line, to not strike. And you can put on an event because the UFC puts events on every two weeks. This isn't the NFL where everybody plays the same weekend. So if a bunch, half the players don't show up, you can't have games. They just have to, they just have to book one event at a time. And so they only need a limited amount of fighters across the line. They can then re-sign new guys. There's an endless supply of fighters willing to come in. Fighters have very little money, so how long are they going to hold out? If they see they're holding events and other people are making money, how soon are more and more fighters going to cross the line? So I'm not confident labor stoppages will work. Uh, and the 50, and even then, the reason the other leagues pay 50% of the revenue is not because the athletes go on strike. It's because the league decided that we need them to commit to not having free agency because otherwise our expenses even rise higher. They're in the 60, 70% of revenue. So we were the ones, the owners are the ones that pitch 50%. It's not the players that ask for a 50% split. It's the owners that say, we will give you 50% if you give up these certain rights so we can commit violations of the uh, of the Sherman Act and commit and, be, and have a monopoly. But in exchange for us on Monopoly, we're going to give you guarantee you half the revenue. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a huge insight that people overlook that exactly it's the leagues that bring the 50 percent of the fighters. It's not that the fighters, you know, work and scratch and manage to chip it away. It's it's exactly for that purpose. And and one thing I wanted to ask you as well in regards to that split, um, you know, right now we're around 20 percent. Given the way everyone's just saying, oh, you just need to bump it up to, you know, 30, 40, 50. But given the way the UFC has kind of positioned themselves with, you know, Endeavor obviously has a lot of debt, which is separate from the UFC. But even UFC's debt is $2.3 billion or something um, around that range, what you reported on last year. Um, and, and their credit's been downgraded by Moody's during the pandemic, everything like that. Let's say that, you know, pigs fly. And UFC says, you know what, we want to go ahead and give give fighters now 40-50%. Is that even feasible at this point, given that if they had to, given the, the way they're debt leveraged, is that feasible that they could make that change anywhere near soon? Wouldn't it have to be pretty incremental? Well, okay, if, if we take a year, let's say not this year. This year is an oddity because we lose the gate revenue and we have the pandemic, so they're going to have less revenue. But let's take a, let's expect that next year they're going to make $90 million. And they're going to give the fighters, uh, or they're going to make nine, not ninety million. They're going to make not, they're going to make actually their projections were let's say in next year, the year after that, they hit a billion dollars because that was their projections, a billion dollars. And they're going to pay the fighters twenty percent, two hundred million for the fighters. The UFC's total revenues is a billion. Their costs are fixed; they don't really rise. They stay the same every year, so their profits go up. So they already project that their EBITDA, their earnings, is going to be about fifty percent. So you got five hundred million in earnings, two hundred million. In and for the fighters, well, the payoff that 2.3 billion it's actually 2.46 billion now alone because they they revolved from they took off from the revolver, so they have to pay that back. But but to pay that off, uh, at the old rate now, the now we're got this gets so confusing, but the, the the interest rates have actually plummeted because governments have cut interest rates to kind of stimulate the economy. But let's say next year goes back to normal. The old interest, what they were paying before was about $145 million a year and then covered interest and the 1% amortization per year they had to pay off for that loan. So $500 million, they only need $145 to pay the loan. 
Well, guess what? That leaves a lot left over for the fighters. If you really wanted the fighters to get 50%, they could still afford to give the fighters, you know, 50% and still make a, a small, you know, a small 5% margin profit. Gotcha. Okay. So there is still room for them to do that, but obviously that 5% margin profit would, you know. Well, that, I mean, that, but also then Endeavor's expecting that money to help pay off their other stuff. That's where you get in trouble because Endeavor's going to have to collect 50% of that and 25 million a year for Endeavor's not probably not enough to cover the cost of William Morris's uh, what $5 billion or four additional billion dollars in uh, leverage or debt and liabilities that they have. Right. Yes, exactly. And then that's, you know, and, and we talked about the projections, um, you know, because they're projecting to make a billion dollars. But as, as Moody's credit report uh, released, you know, back in April there, it seemed, at least according to what you found, uh, you know, their projections on the lender presentation of where they were in 2016 and how they were going to, you know, end up at 940 million in 2019, things of that nature. But they only got 850. It looks like they didn't quite meet those lender presentation revenues. Um, so, you know, take that into account. Uh, is, is there, again, if you could split the fighter revenue out, there's definitely wiggle room there. But in terms of it happening overnight with their other current obligations, is... Well, I guess they, no matter what, Endeavor does. I mean, Endeavor bought the UFC to make a bunch of money. I, they have no interest in increasing fighter pay. So you have to look at, if you're going to increase fighter pay, you have to look at it regardless of what Endeavor wants. You you have to make it fait accompli that Endeavor, this is the new standard, and you have to pay this amount if you want to stay in the UFC business. Got it. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense to me. Um, now, with, with everything we've just talked about, uh, you know, Dana White's response uh, in terms of, of the fighter complaints has been his go-to line is, we're in a pandemic. You know, he's, he keeps touting that line. Uh, you know, obviously making it seem that they, their revenues have been hit hard. As, as you and I know, that's not entirely true based on the media rights contracts and things that they have guaranteed. But, you know, you did mention that 12% or so of, of revenue might be tied to tickets and things of that nature, gate things of that nature that they're they're missing out on at this point. Is it really more of an impact than we're seeing, do you think? Is there something there that we're missing or is it kind of a that's the standard line to to kind of quash that 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 uh fighter discontent? Well it's if if the UFC if the UFC didn't have the huge debt burden they had and if Endeavor didn't have the huge debt burden they had and the expectation that UFC would help cover their costs. Uh, then it wouldn't be no problem. They're, the UFC would be just moving along smoothly. They'd, they'd be cranking out. They'd, they'd be making money hand over fist this year, like every year. Because even without the uh, without the the live gate revenue, minimum they'll probably make seven hundred million this year if they hold all their events. Minimum, maybe seven hundred fifty million, and that's if they don't have a big blockbuster pay per view. So seven seven hundred fifty million. Uh, last year their EBITDA again was. We estimate based on we have an EBITDA debt to uh, EBITDA ratio that we can use to calculate what it was. It was about 350 million. So they made 350 million. Again, 150 million for the loan. Uh, this year it's actually be probably down to 100 because of the drop in interest rates. But 150 million for the interest rate and stuff. So they still had 200 million after all that was done last year. So if they lose 100 million, guess what? They have 100 million dollars in earnings that they have this year. That's very healthy, profitable. Unfortunately, they got to split that with other owners, and Endeavor needs that money to stay afloat. So they're going to want every dollar they make 
coming in so they can hand it out in distributions and give it to Endeavor to then use that to pump it into William Morris. Yeah, that that makes sense. That that's man, I I love talking about this stuff. This is great. Um, with with you got an audience of two here, two people. There's your there's your target audience. No, it's all right. My Michael, our editor's in the background. He's loving it. He, the, the fans can't see it, but he's loving it. Uh, we, now, something else I want to go back to as well. Um, you talked about a couple fighters just need to to cross that line in order for a, a labor strike or anything of that nature to kind of fall apart, which I would. 100% agree with. Um, an article you did this past February that looked at the uh, letters of agreement and unique forms of UFC compensation uh, when we're talking about, you know, Rampage getting a Dodge Challenger or Holly Holm getting a specific amount of pre-sale tickets and some hotels and things of that nature. From my perspective, looking at those types of agreements as compensation are interesting in the sense that Things, some of the things that I learned in school and from some of my mentors have been, you know, don't give the client money, so to speak. Give them a vacation package that's actually worth less, but it's more unique. And that kind of buys, you know, goodwill with the client. They feel a little bit more special. Um, is that something that you think is part of the reasons that they do those letters of agreements is to kind of, you know, say like, hey, we're doing you this favor with a unique kind of offering rather than just cash that might curb some discontent if if it was just all about the numbers um i guess what where does that where do those agreements come from what what's the purpose in your mind well i mean the letter of agreement are slightly different usually a letter of agreement is that's an addendum to your contract so if, let's say my contract says i get you know a hundred thousand to show a hundred thousand to win my addendum to it my letter of agreement might say oh in addition you'll get five hundred thousand dollars for this fight that will be mailed to you two weeks later now that five hundred thousand isn't reported to the athletic commission because it isn't part of your your bout agreement. It's additional money, so that's the letter of agreement. These these other forms of compensation, yeah, I think part of it is like it's goodwill. It's a way. It's a it's a way to distract the fighters. You know, I mean, we there's story. If you I'm in Hollywood, and there's the adult industry out here, and the adult industry was famous this for years. Is that they'd put actresses up in. Uh, great apartments and give them cars to use, but they didn't own them. So they, they felt like they're rich, but they really didn't have any money because the, the the person giving it to them, the studios, the porn studios owned all that stuff. Now fighters are getting this stuff, but it's still, it's, 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 it's all bells and whistles. It's all, you know, it's all glam. It's not real cash. So they're not thinking about it. I mean, uh, John Jones the other day, he was distracted by the Bentley, the game for Machida. He didn't think about the actual amount of money that he wasn't making for the fight. Holly Holmes a little different though. I think her fight, her manager comes from the boxing world and her ticket thing was, it's a way to increase her income. Uh, he, they, I think they knew that the UFC is very hard to deal with financially, but they're like, Hey, here's something that we can get from them. Very simple. A thousand extra tickets for the Ronda Rousey fight. And we can, we can sell them because you know, we know how much tickets go for on major events. And so I think that was, that was, they coming from boxing, they knew the resale value of tickets for major events. And so that's why they put that in there. Gotcha. So, so that was more of a strategic play, whereas you know, uh, Rampage's Dodge Challenger or John Jones Bentley was more just, hey, here's a shiny object to, to kind of distract you. That, yeah, that's yeah. Wave some in front and distract them, and not think about the other stuff. He's like, isn't it great? I'm getting a great car. And like, well, yeah, but you could have probably maybe should ask for more money. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and you know, speaking of boxing, um, somebody found this the other day and, and directed me to it uh and and watching it i i found it pretty eye opening was 
back in 2013, Dana White uh, talked to Stanford uh, Business School uh, graduates, and and their um, you know basically had a sit down one on one was was a nice little chat where they got to ask questions, do a Q and A, things of that nature. And in that, he said a huge problem with boxing was that you know if you're a multimillionaire, you're not incentive to fight. You run around, you don't you know you, you don't actually go to it. You don't go for the knockouts, those things. And that his belief was that they incentivized the fighters with bonuses. Uh, they, you know, they made it so that they wanted to get up and work because if you paid them too much, well, they're not just not going to care. They're going to, you know, half ass it, so to speak. Um, do you think that there is any truth to that whatsoever in terms of, you know, if, if Jones was getting that extra marginal revenue product of 32 or million on some of those fights that he would be less incentivized to fight that it wouldn't, he, he would kind of, you know, play it safe. Is, is that a, any sort of, is there any sort of, you know, grounds for him to stand on there? I, I mean, it's it's strange how it's always when it's the working people, giving them more money will disincentivize them to work, but uh, doesn't seem to disincentivize super wealthy when they inherit money or, or Dana White when he makes a lot of money. He, he always talks about how hard he works, how many hours. Well, under that theory, you should be working less. You should be putting as much effort because you made a bunch of money. Where's your incentive now? Um, I, I don't think it's true. If that was true, Canelo Alvarez would be fighting two times a year because he's making more than any fighter in the UFC. Uh, Wilder was knocking people out left and right for years. And in the last 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 year, I think he made, you know, what, 35, 40 million in that ballpark for two fights last year and knocked both opponents out clean. Uh, his fights were pretty exciting. So I don't see the evidence that People making a lot of money are not going to fight. And if their style calls for knockouts, I think they're going to still knock out and have exciting fights. Man, if I would, and this, it's probably a long shot, but you're never going to get a chance to sit one on one with Dana for an interview, right? That's not something you foresee. I, I, doubt it. I don't really do interviews and I don't think they would put them. I mean, hey, if you want stuff, more than willing to talk to them. If, and if someone has an interview and they want to ask questions and they don't know what to ask them, Contact me. I have several questions I would love to have people ask Dana White. I'm I'm with you there. Um, uh, now, an, another thing, just in terms of the business mindset, and this is something that I've talked about a couple of times uh, through various podcasts or um, with, with some of my colleagues uh, regarding the UFC's you know view on business. That I wanted to see if if you think I'm completely off here or or that it's 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 in the ballpark. And that's, you know, in, in terms of uh, the business model the UFC does, you know, when Matt Mitrione left the UFC to go to Bellator, uh, there was an interview he did talking about how he liked Bellator more, he felt more at home, things of that nature. But a, a big part that stood out to me from that interview was in discussions with the UFC, he said that the UFC doesn't view the fighters as the product, that they view the brand as the product and the fighters are just kind of there. And he thought that was nuts. He said, how could the fighters not be the product? We're the ones putting on the fights. Uh, to me, that confirms that the UFC is, is definitely running itself much more along, uh, you know, the business franchise model that Ray Kroc kind of made fr famous in terms of trying to build these systems, build the brand, and then get the lowest pay employees, or in this case, independent contractors to kind of, be the cogs in the system to make it work, but that they don't view, you know, the fighters as this huge part of the system. They view the system and their brand as the selling port point. They view that as the moneymaker, not the fighters. Am I wrong in thinking that? Am I wrong in, in that they 
they're not looking at it from that perspective of we've got to build, you know, these shows, we've got to have this marketing, we've got to have, you know, as many people as we can in terms of getting top ranked guys, but really in terms of the pay, we can just kind of churn them out. We can build stars. It, I think that's what the story they tell. I don't know if it's truly they believe it because they're a little schizophrenic about this. They they talk about how the brand is the the, the is special that the brand is what draws people, and then they mentioned in their own internal that you know the, the the reports they send to like lenders and stuff, sales pitches that the brand is super important. It's all about the brand that uh, we sell out of stadiums even you know without before most of the tickets before even the fighters are announced stuff like that. So that's fine. On the other hand, though, they, they constantly also bring the importance of individual fighters. They bring up that the, the, we have the best fighters, that we everybody knows we have the best fighters, that these fighters that will, you know, George St. Pierre and, and Conor McGregor and Brock Lesnar and Ronda Rousey sell so many more pay-per-views than anybody else. And if, if so if that's the case, it's not the brand, the individual fighters have appeal uh, on, on, on that story that way. So, yeah, I think the brand is important. The UFC's done a lot to build their brand. But I think they also want to constantly talk about the brand and their secret sauce and they do special stuff that makes that no one else apparently can do to mask the fact that the fighters, they don't want the fighters to realize or the public or even the public realize how important the fighters are to their to their machine, how important cogs they are. The UFC brand is better than any brand in combat sports. I think that's for sure. But at the same time, if that was the case, you wouldn't see a 700,000 pay-per-view shift in buys because a certain fighter main event is on. You know, that you, you wouldn't see certain fighters bringing in the revenue of their events, bringing in two, three, four times as much as other events. Uh, if the brand was important, you'd see a much more flattening of, of revenue for every event. But instead, we have huge fluctuations based on what the fighter and fight is involved. So that tells you that people are drawn by that as much or more than the brand. Right, 100%. And, and I guess with their shift from you know, being so variable in terms of their revenue based on stars like Conor McGregor, John Jones, things of that nature to this, you know, more guaranteed revenue with, with ESPN and then ESPN taking the pay-per-view buys as well in terms of giving them a set fee. And then they, once they hit a certain amount buy amount, that's when they're looking at, at getting some additional revenue um, as they kind of insulate themselves by shifting from more variable revenue to fixed. Uh, do you think now that will change their mindset at all that they will, will kind of go more all in on that, you know, brand belief. Cause, uh, cause you're right. In terms of, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think they're going to push the fighters. So, cause they know it draws attention. It draws it's what the fans want, but yeah, I mean, it definitely takes leverage away from the fighters because uh, now, you know, you, uh, John, I mean, some of these fighters are probably expecting like, Oh, if I hold out, UFC loses money for me not fighting. Like, well, not really. Yeah. They don't, they lose some money if John Jones doesn't fight because he, he beats the threshold for the pay-per-view. Same with Masvidal. But it ain't worth it to them to, to change the pay structure because they're guaranteed no matter what. No matter how bad of an event they put on, as long as it, my understanding is as long as it's a title fight in a pay-per-view, they're going to get paid by ESPN Plus. And they're going to get paid, I think it's a $15 million guarantee. Um, and then, you know, so no matter how bad it sells, they're going to make $15 million just on the ESPN Plus pay-per-view. Apple, the other sources, you're talking 20 to $25 million without including gate, that, that they're guaranteed per pay-per-view. That's a sizable amount of money. And so it, it takes away a lot of it takes away a lot of pressure from them, but also takes away a lot of leverage for fighters because we can make it work with anybody. Even though even though it's the collective sum of the fighters that allows them to sell this. I mean, the UFC is not just getting this because they're putting on anything. ESPN paid because they looked at over time that you'd sell this amount of pay-per-views. 
on an event by event basis, it gives the UFC a lot of leverage because it's like, well, we can make it up later with big events to keep ESPN happy. But for now, you ask it for more, we don't need to we don't need to cave in because we can we can make the money off it for now and later we'll we'll correct it with bigger events and UFC will be happy. ESPN will be happy because we'll have you know, we'll have some big blockbusters down the line to, to make up the difference. Yeah, no, I, I think that's pretty much spot on, um, especially with the way that they're negotiating right now and with what White's saying with Masvidal and Jones. I think that's that pretty much sums up their thinking. <laughs> um, with with that in mind, uh, obviously you've got the antitrust lawsuit that's you know been years and years in the system, uh, still going through. I know recently there was some movement in that in terms of uh, several documents being sealed, but then some some others it looks like are going to be unsealed. Um, with that, it, is there anything in particular you think is going to come out and be unsealed at this point? What, what exactly is the move, movement there? And do you think uh, the judge is close to class certification? Because I know you're waiting on that decision. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anything's going to come out until or if they get class certified. He, he hasn't ruled on class certification yet. He ruled on a bunch of motions. One is he threw out um, the, the 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 defendants asked that some Joe Silva testimony be included, and he said it was outside. You know, he he disallowed it because it wasn't part of what Joe Silva was meant to be testifying on. Uh, so that's one thing he ruled on. Then he also ruled on the decisions on a lot of the um, the sealing documents, and that he basically reinforced the stuff that's sealed is going to stay sealed, but we're going to unseal it going if we have to going forward. He didn't say though that the case is going to go forward. Reading between the lines, it kind of suggests that maybe he's going to do class cert, that he's going to grant class cert, and and he wants to be you know let everybody know ahead of time. But uh, we don't know for sure. I guess that's the really everything's on hold until we know what goes on with class certification. That is, this is a class action suit. So a group of fighters, the current plaintiffs, are claiming to represent all the UFC fighters that fought during this time period that they're suing over. They're claiming they represent all of them, so not everybody has to sue. And class certification is the granting of, yes, they represent this class of fighters. And until that happens, if he grants it, we, we don't know. We really have nothing to go on. But it sounds like if it does get class cert, that he's going to be much more lenient in unsealing documents going forward. That he's he's going to prevent he's, a lot of the stuff that's been blotted out, redacted previously, when it gets re, uh, refiled or new stuff gets filed, I think it's going to be a lot less redactions. Well, that'd be huge. I mean, based on the amount of information you've already been able to glean from what's there, I'd imagine if they take out a, a lot of those redactions, I mean, who knows what we could learn. Um, is, is there anything in particular that you think, let, let's say he goes with class, class certification and a lot of that stuff gets redacted. Based on what you've read, is there any particular piece you'd love to see unredacted or you think would have the most impact? Uh, I think some of the email stuff you can read between the lines and it, you can about like the purchase of pride, the intent behind their purchase of certain companies. I think that'd be intriguing. I mean, the description of the email makes it clear that the UFC bought pride not to actually run it, but they wanted to prevent anybody else from having it. But be interesting to see how they, they talked about it. They were very clear about, you know, that the only purpose is we want to make sure that there's not another competitor in the future. That's one. And the other thing I think would be uh, right now all the data is aggregate, so there's no individual fighters. For going forward, it would be interesting if they had more. Even if they redacted the name, if they have individual fighters, especially the top ends, you know exactly, oh, the highest paid guy in this year, the third highest and fifth highest. This is what they're making for a fight. And then we knew the events, how much the events made. 
instead of aggregate data, we started breaking apart because then you could look at it like, well, now it's much easier to come up with like the marginal revenue product numbers for fighters if we have that information. So I, I mean, as a, I guess a numbers dork like me, you know, the, the guys like Jason Cruz and Paul Giff, I guess that's what we would like to see. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I I'm with, I'm with you as well. I would love to see those numbers. Um, I, I, I would love to dive into them. Um, in, in something you mentioned there though, with, you know, Paul gift, Jason Cruz, yourself, you three have been leading the way in, you know, covering this stuff, you know, for years and years. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, fighters seem to finally be, you know, reading some of these things in terms of citing, you know, specific revenue percentages, things of that nature. Is there a reason you think that, you know, it's been kind of limited to, um, you know, U3's co U3 covering this? Is it more of a knowledge issue? I, I mean, I know I have a business background, so I understand some of the numbers and it's easier for me to follow, but it also doesn't seem that it's, it would be that hard to learn and dive into if you really put some time into it. Is, is there a particular reason you think that is, is um, that we haven't seen it covered as much? I mean, I'm not 100% certain. There's a, there's a bunch of theories I have. I mean, one, one thing, there's been a drastic change in the, the, the media's view of the UFC. If you go back 10 years ago, I mean, guys that now they're very critical of the UFC's business practice, 10 years ago, they're very defensive of them. They, they thought a lot of the complaints that they now probably agree with were, you know, were actually, you know, false and there's no basis for it. That, uh, that, the, the, if, you know, there a lot of, you read a lot of old, the same media guys read some of their old stuff from 2010. They're, they were saying that if the fighter didn't like it. He shouldn't have signed the contract. And now that they, the, the same media member would probably be saying it's unfair. The fighters have to sign those contracts. They have no choice. So I think that's one thing that, you know, you had a lot, it took a while for a lot of people to come around on different points of view. I think it's one. Yeah. I, I, for a lot of media members, I think they're, they don't have, they just don't think they have the knowledge Two, it's a, it takes a lot of effort to cover this stuff. There's a lot of you're reading through a lot of stuff, uh, and it, and the way media works in MMA, it's just it, it there's no rate of uh, return on this. So there's no return on investment. Uh, you put hours and hours and you post it, and it gets a few hits. It's not worth it. It'd be better to call, to cover a, a Conor McGregor tweet and get the returns on that because that's going to generate revenue. For your site i mean there's no money to be made really bloody elbow pays me for this because i think it's you know it's something nate wilcox likes he likes having the site have this but really there's not much value to the site for what i do and so and, and paul gift does it because it's a hobby for him it's a hobby for me i have a regular job paul gift does a hobby for him and jason cruz is that's his website's dedicated to the business of mma but it's the only one that's dedicated to the business of mma so that's the other thing. And then finally, I would say that uh, there, I think there is a degree that it's a subject that uh, I think there's a lot of people in the media that they know that we don't want to cover stuff that can maybe possibly offend the UFC in any way. So we won't report it. We'll, we'll cover when other people do it. So if someone does a story, we'll aggregate it and do it. But we won't investigate it ourselves because we want to get the interviews and have access to the UFC. So I think the, all those things come together, kind of limit the coverage. Yeah, no, I, I would, that, that would be, that would have been my guess as well. I'm with you on those theories. Um, you know, I think it's, it's pretty ironic that, you know, the, the stuff, the stuff doesn't get clicks when it's, I would say is arguably the most important and so, some of the most important information that's been released in terms of, you know, what we're looking at, seeing their actual numbers kind of pulling behind the curtain, but 
people people don't want to read it, and that's well, I mean, fighters, I mean, not for most, for most fans, it makes sense. So, what's the most fans just want to see two guys that they like that they're interested in getting in the cage and fight. I mean, it's the everything else is not important to their life. They got a life, they got other stuff to do. They, they don't want to be preoccupied with all the other elements of the fight business. They're, for them, it's you know, it's almost fantasy, you know, to them, it's escapism. I love watching these two guys. I love watching certain people fight. I want to see them fight. I do not need to know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Well, lucky for you and me, uh, we've we've got some employers that will pay us to do that as well. Thank you, Michael. I know you're somewhere behind the scenes. Thank you, because <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same boat. Um, but yeah, no, I agree 100%. That's, that's what the fans are looking for. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, cause I found pretty interesting. Um, I know Jason Cruz, as, as we we're talking about him, uh, sent out a tweet that said, you know, not so bold prediction in a year or so Dana White will be, uh, will be gone. Uh, I, I thought that was an interesting tweet. I think I replied, I saw you liked it as well. Um, you know, your thoughts on that. Did, do you think he could be right? Could Dana leave? Uh, if, if so, is there, is it business? Is it just, he's fed up with dealing with it? What? You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? I thought the th what I thought is the genius of the tweet is that Jason took an extreme uh, predict prediction. If it doesn't happen, no one's going to recall that he made the prediction. If it does happen, he can retweet it and look like, look how I'm Nostradamus. Look how Gene, I, look how I, I predicted this when no one else saw this coming. Brilliant. Brilliant by Jason. I give hats off to that. But uh, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I think his thinking is Dana White does not look happy in having to deal with this kind of stuff. That that maybe the, the the fighter discontent continues and like, what's the point? I've already made tons of money. I've other investments, other opportunities. I don't need this headache. Uh, I also don't need to be the bad guy in the future when more and more people start complaining about this and that there's more squabbling over the the split. So I think that, I mean, I think there's a possibility of that. I could see that. Like, what's the point? It's the job's not enjoyable. If all I'm dealing with every week is people calling me a, a bastard for not paying enough. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and actually one last thing I, I do want to circle back to is because we've talked about, you know, him not being happy as well. Uh, Dom, Dominique Foxworth on ESPN, you know, that might've been the most high, high profile coverage I've seen of someone actually asking you know, some of those tough questions to Dana that he didn't seem, you know, too pleased about, to say the least. Um, uh, do you think that's going to become more common? Uh, do you think that, you know, as the UFC has this deal with ESPN, especially right now, they're the only game in town. Do you think that, you know, someone like him is going to get more knowledgeable on the subject, is going to start asking Dana tougher questions? Is that something he could kind of, you know, face more often? I think it's possible. I mean, I've noticed there's a lot more mainstream press coverage the UFC lately. The, the, the fact that the UFC beat everybody to the punch uh, during the COVID outbreak, pandemic uh, lockdowns, and started holding events drew a lot more mainstream attention. And they noticed that there, the participation agreement was really draconian. It brought more attention. So UFC is actually drawn mainstream attention more than they have in the past, but not on the big fights. Maybe in the, in the old days they'd talk about maybe UFC 100, how it's a huge event and no one really paid attention to the mixed martial arts and the UFC is now a big deal or Brock Lesnar or something like that or the big TV deals. Now it's much more about their practices with their fighters. And I don't know if it's, it's as appealing as attention. I don't think they were expecting that kind of mainstream attention. And so going forward, I, I just see there might be more. I mean, I've talked to people 
uh, I've gotten calls and stuff from people at uh, bigger sites that don't normally cover the UFC, and and this is the type of stuff they're looking at: fighter pay and the antitrust lawsuit, and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so we might get more of that if that's the case. You might get more, I mean, more people like Dominic Foxworth, who actually even admitted he wasn't prepared for this interview. And maybe I don't know if Dana White will go back, but if he does, I bet you Dominic Foxworth is is much more prepared. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And I, and I would love to see that interaction. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I was, I, I enjoyed that, that back and forth. I, I enjoyed someone asking those questions. Uh, maybe it's just because we're business nerds, but you know, I, I really love to see that more often, especially and have Dana, you know, have to answer some of those. Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a big Dominic Foxworth fan back from his, his background and stuff. And he's written articles and stuff that I've cited. Uh, I, I was slightly disappointed he wasn't prepared because I thought it would have been much more intriguing if he'd actually had a chance to, to, to know some of the numbers and stuff going in. Agreed. A hundred percent agreed. Um, well, I could, you know, sit here literally all day and just talk to you about the stuff and pick your brain. Um, I, I would love nothing more than to do that for hours on end. Uh, rather you than you yeah. hobbies, you really got to get, you got to find more entertaining things to do with your day than, this is my hobby. This is, <laughs> this is <laughs> terrible, um, terrible way to spend your life, Patrick. I'm maybe, sorry. Uh, maybe so, but you know, I'm I'm happy with it. Um, so again, we can find your work at Bloody Elbow. Um, you also have the Show Money podcast. If I'm not mistaken, I believe you have a new episode of that coming out soon. Is that correct? Or the Sunday, so it means Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, a new episode. Fingers crossed. We're kind of lazy, but we're, you know, every other month, basically, we do one. All right. Well, I'll, I'll be I'll be definitely checking in uh, to make sure that when that comes out to listen to it right away. I hope that uh, you guys will be doing shots of tequila again. I know that that only happened once, <laughs> but no, we're not, we won't be doing that. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, th thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, again, definitely think that this is some of the most impactful work in the sport. Whether you get the credit for it or not, I, I think that most anyone that's paying attention would agree that you should for sure be nominated, bare minimum nominated for Journalist of the Year, if not, uh, you know, win it one of these times. No, no. But, uh, my output is way too low for that. That's for sure. There's there's a lot. There's a lot of other people who deserve some some attention. I think for considering how little how little effort I put into the, my work. So. Well, well, you know, humble as always, at least peace of the year. I'll, I'll st I will stand my ground on that. At least peace of, of the year. You should definitely get nominated. I, I mean, I like accolades. Throw them my way. I don't care if I deserve them or not. I don't, I'll take it. I mean, call me the best journalist. I don't care. I mean, even if I don't believe it, I'll accept it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, just, you know, keep doing the great work you're doing. Really appreciate it, John. Oh, well, thank you, Patrick. Enjoyed it. This was enjoyable to a degree. Thank you.